So a few days back, Val and I interviewed Fran Hobson. Fran's a grassroots independence activist, lives up in the northeast of Scotland. She worked for the National Health Service for 45 years. Some of that was down in England. Um, she's married to an Englishman and then both of them moved back up to, to Scotland. Her daughter is a nurse practitioner in Aberdeen. So she has lots of experience of working in NHS, both past and present, and both in England and in Scotland. So I came across Fran uh, from an article which appeared in the National on Sunday last week. It was uh, written by Judith Duffy, and in it, Judith contacted some indie activists and quoted three of them in the article. Well, I say three of them, one of them was me. The other one was Rob Rosie, who's an activist in Aberdeen. We'll be talking to Rob later on in the programme. And the third one was Fran. So after I'd read that article, I thought, well, let's see if we can get Rob and Fran to come and talk to Val and I for the daytime show. We did that. We've contacted them. That's who our two guests are today. So first of all, we talked to Fran. As I sort of said to Val, I said, look, you know, I've just been approached by Judith Duffy from the National. Now, she approached, didn't approach me personally, she approached Pensioners for Independence. Mm -hmm. And I got, I'm involved in that, I got passed on the link. So I contacted uh, Judith. And then, and then in the end, uh, she had three of us. She had yourself, me and Rob Rosie, who we're going to be talking to later on. Uh, all sort of saying, I think originally she wanted us to talk about um, what we thought were the most important, you know, things to get sorted out in a, a yeah. yes campaign. And then at the last minute, it got changed to what do we think about Mike Russell's 11 point plan? So in the end, that's what she's put in. Um, I hope she does the original one as well, because I thought that was a good a good topic. So, yeah, mm -hmm. so that's that. I thought, oh, let's um, contact you. Judith Duffy asked me to either speak to her over the phone or write a piece about um, the upcoming or, or the, the past assembly for, um, looking at ways of achieving, in, different ways of achieving independence. And I suppose it's something that's close to my heart because, as you can see, I'm no spring chicken and I've fought for independence. I've worked hard for independence more so in the past. I've had a couple of years of ill health made worse by the, um, the COVID crisis, extending it. However, um, I still help out occasionally on um, the Scottish Mums for Independence. Ah, yeah. And she certainly used the comments that I made on the, 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 the update to the, the conference, uh, to the assembly, not the not my original comments although i would say that they probably weren't that significantly different anyway um i mean i i read a lot of information from various different sources about how to achieve independence and there are certainly some people who speak about being able to achieve it in in other ways than the section 30 and I'm not an expert, I'm not a solicitor or anything like that, but some very knowledgeable people have put, put information that, that it is possible to achieve it. And what I really wanted to know was why the SNP are not trying to 
act on that information, why they just always seem to, to focus in on the on the Section 30 part of it. Um, I mean, originally when I said that I would speak to you, it was, it was about the NHS, but I also wanted to say about my um, frustration, I suppose, because I'm not young, I would like to see independence in my lifetime. And I have seen so many friends who have been activists who have died and not seen it, um, that I'm not so silly that I can't realize that that, that that might not happen to me. But it isn't just for me, it's for my children and more specifically in my case for my grandchildren, because I've just been saying to Valerie that I've got twin grandsons who are both, um, autistic they both have special needs and um the way that the Westminster government the, the Tories have been I'm going to use the word attacking because I think that's what they do they attack the vulnerable people in society like those with special needs mm. so from my point of view um any action that I take is is aimed at trying to to help and support my grandchildren to have a better life and I see that as being something that would be achieved with Scottish independence yeah, yeah, yeah. absolutely yeah. tell us Fran um, then you've obviously been involved in working for independence for a long time so can you tell us a little bit about how you first when that happened and how you first got involved oh crikey well i said to you a little while ago that i i was born in scotland but my parents moved to england when i was eight and um met an englishman when i was 17 and I suppose I thought that I would we would stay in England forever we would get married and stay down there forever but my husband used to work for the agricultural training board and they had an a thing where they moved people you didn't have a choice in what happened they moved you and we got moved here to Banff in um, 1974 no 84 1984 and so um, Scotland became home he was an only child he didn't have very much family down south anyway and my family had always been his family I've got a lot of family around about still in the um in Aberdeenshire in the in in Bururi area so it, it didn't you know being here was no different to being anywhere really it just we had that extended family around about um and when we first moved up here in 84 I'm going to be honest and say that I probably would I don't know how long I carried on being a liberal supporter and it was in those days the liberal party um but I've never been ultra left wing and I've never been ultra right wing but supporting the liberals then very very quickly I started to realize that the SNP were the only party who I felt spoke for Scotland who acted for Scotland for the, for the best interest for the, the, the country and its people and I think that probably was influenced a great deal because I live in what was the old well it's, it's Aberdeenshire but the old Banffshire and um, Alex Salmond was the MP for the area for as you'll know a number of years yeah. and so the SNP were a big influence in in this northeast corner of Scotland so um, Hamish Watt as well sorry Hamish Watt as well yeah 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 Maudie, Maudie, Maudie I suppose more particularly Alex Salmon, because he's much more of a um, charismatic figure. 
Well, I was going to say dynamic character. Yes, he's charismatic, um, but you know, he he. It was obvious when he spoke that he spoke for for the country. I used to work in a small maternity unit in Banff and it was threatened with closure. And he came to visit us and you know, the way he spoke, it just, you just knew that it, it meant a great deal to him to, um, you know, to fight to keep these local services um, in operation. Um, and so I started voting SNP and then, um, crikey, and I suppose, I couldn't tell you how long I've been a member, but it's quite a number of years now. And then more recently um, became, you know, a member of the, our, our local branch, started going to branch meetings, um, got on the committee. And then I was um, for a number of years, CA secretary for our Banff and Buckingham Coast CA. Um, and, and I suppose through Mums for Independence, Mums for Scottish Independence as well, because I've been helping Maureen for a number of years. Tell us about that. From memory, and I don't really know why, because I, I have in the past um, joined lots of different um, groups, independence groups on Facebook. Um, but I'd been a member of, or I'd been participating in the Mums for Independence for a long time. And initially it started off because I'm the only, there's, there's, Maureen has a couple of people who support her, but I'm the only other one who does admin with her. And it was a real honour to be asked. Um, and it started off by me picking up on um, unionist comments on the page and um, giving her a heads up in, in Messenger and saying, boy, you've got this person commenting, you know, you might want to look at um, deleting them because Maureen, I know that some pages don't do that, but um, the Mums for Independence do um, block trolls. Um, and that's how it started. And then Maureen asked me if I'd like to um, help. So, yeah. And another thing we'd really like to ask you about, Fran, I'm I'm really enjoying hearing about all the different involvement, and I bet you've got a lot of stories you could tell us having been involved in the SNP up in the northeast for such a long time. Um, it makes me think of my sister. She's as I say, she's in her sixties now, but she told me that when she did her higher modern studies, part of the project was to interview Hamish Watt, and but it was back in the days of cassette recorders, and she came to the house and basically just interviewed himself, switched on the cassette recorder, ate a packet of rich tea biscuits, and talked in an uninterrupted about being an MP for about forty-five minutes. She said it was absolutely fantastic. <laughs> he's he's passed away now of course anyway so Fran we want to talk to you so um what I wanted to ask you about is very much you mentioned your um your grandsons and why you know that's a priority and the vulnerability of people about how the Tory government is making such savage cuts to support for so many vulnerable groups and one of the things that you have got particular experience of is the health service because you worked in the health service for 45 years and your daughter is a nurse practitioner in Aberdeen mm -hmm. so you would have a handle on the past and on the current situation and views on the future um, do you... and not just that I also have experience of working in both the NHS in England oh. and in Scotland and more recently when well, my parents stayed in in England they'd always thought that they would retire to Scotland but they decided not to 
latterly. And um, my father died just a few years ago in Northampton General Hospital. So although I hadn't worked in the English Health Service for um, some time, um, he died, um, you know, in an English hospital. So I experienced what the health service was like then. And, and also just a couple of years before that, he and I had a car accident in, in, um, in Northampton and we were both taken to hospital. So I saw the English NHS in action more recently and I was appalled both times. Tell us a bit about your... Um... Your views then on the difference between the health service here in Scotland and down in England? When I, I mean, I trained, I started off as a cadet nurse in, in Kettering General Hospital in Northamptonshire and I transferred, well I didn't transfer, but I moved to um, Aberdeen, Royal Infirmary and did my general nurse training there. Then went back down to Peterborough in Cambridgeshire and did my midwifery there and then I've travelled all over England before I, we then moved, moved here in 84, as I said, and worked in the maternity unit in Banff. And then latterly I was a health visitor. Um, and I would have said in the early days, in, in, in the early seventies, before I, I came up to Aberdeen to do my training and, and then before we actually moved up here to Aberdeen in, in or to Aberdeenshire in 84, I wouldn't have said that you could have noticed that much of a difference between the two, the English NHS and the, um, the Scottish NHS as it is as it's being run now but my trip to Northampton General Hospital when my dad and I had the car accident and then a few years just a couple of years later when he had a stroke and was taken into Northampton as a patient the difference was vast um, here in Scotland they have a very very um, good system for patients basically knowing where to go for health and support you go to the pharmacist you go to your yeah. gp you know for the simple things you don't bother your gp too much unless it's something that's urgent you know there are other um, health professionals that can help you nurse practitioners and what have you whereas down in england the the system is just it's 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 broken they the the experience when we had the car accident we were taken into the a and e department now i had a, a fractured um, sternum and, and broken ribs and we were I was left sat in a chair um, for a good hour and a half before anyone came anywhere near me I had breathing problems no one came anywhere near me the ambulance men just dumped us in the A&E told the reception desk what it, you know we, we were there and that was it they left us and in the period that I sat and waited I heard numerous people come into that A&E, an accident and emergency department, mind you, and asked to see a doctor about a sore toe or athlete's foot or, and they were all attended to like this was the sort of place that you ought to be coming for that sort of thing. And it's because they can't get GP appointments. Yeah. Uh, that I think that's true. I've I've noticed that I've got I lived down in um, Shropshire for a few years, and I've got a lot of friends down in in England. And I I, I was just I must say our local doctor the wait wasn't too long, but I, friends elsewhere and they're sort of telling me now can take two weeks to get an mm -hmm. appointment for a GP. You know, it's awful. Yeah. Uh, 
And then that's always assuming that they get seen. I've got an elderly aunt. My mum's sister still lives down in Corby um, and her son and my and daughter-in-law. I still have, well, obviously lots of contact with them. Um, in fact, I've spoken to Susan, my, my cousin's wife this morning, and my aunt is now 93, coming up 94. She's been in hospital three times just lately. She's been seen in A&E on a trolley and then discharged home without any x-rays, scans, nothing. She's gone in for breathlessness. Um, swollen legs it looks like she's probably got heart failure and I'm not saying that there's anything marvelous can be done it's the fact that they didn't even attempt to admit her and each time there's been this excuse about Covid but you know I think sometimes these things are an excuse having been into Aberdeen three times over the last year in, in 2020 twice I had operations um, yes there was Covid there but there was never any mention that if, if you were ill, you were, you were going to get seen. And that, you know, that's that's the difference, I think, still between the health service here in Scotland and the health service mm. in England. I've had to contact my doctor a couple of times during the past year since the lockdown started. And both a two or three times, actually, um, just with minor things, but things that needed attended to. And what happens is the doctor will phone you and talk to you and then they make a decision do you need to go up to the um to the um clinic and and one time I actually was quite ill um and I did but I was well and I, I was able to get myself up there and you know despite the fact that there's covid you know I, I was seen almost immediately you know they basically said can you come now and they saw me right away and yeah. I just think that is absolutely fantastic. I'm so grateful. Yeah. I mean, every time I hear a story about the NHS in Scotland and how bad it is, I just want to. That's what I was going to. Ask. That's what I'd like to ask you, Fran, because we're constantly bombarded on the BBC with these stories about and about how bad the health service is and how the Scottish government is failing the country on health and education, and that's repeated like a mantra during you know by the Tories in Westminster. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's absolutely scandalous, really, isn't it? They've never wanted the NHS though, right from the inception uh, in 1948. They fought very, very hard, the Tories did. If you look back at the history of it, they fought very hard to not have the NHS. Um, and I suppose now they have a government that hates it with a passion and has the power to be able to do something about it. Having said that, they've been taking action for a long time in England. This is not yeah. something that just happened overnight in England. They've been selling off large chunks of the NHS. The, the infrastructure within buildings and also procurement um, has been sold off. Um, I, you mentioned having involvement with other groups. I did, I did used to go to the Geary Women for Change and um, I believe Lynn Copeland spoke to you um, some time ago yeah. about their, the work that they've done. And I went to a couple get of- Get her back on. Sorry? Get, yeah, get her back on. She she is certainly very, very knowledgeable about it. I mean, I, I know, but I, I don't have the ability 
nowadays to be able to store the information in my brain. Um, I suppose I've got so much else going on in my life that um, I don't keep all the facts and figures, but she certainly knows her business about it. And she she um, knows that they've been doing this for a long, long time. I mean, there are a lot of activists who have tried to do it, but it just gets buried. Nobody ever, you know, it doesn't see the light of day because the mainstream media, the BBC, they're all in the Tories' pockets, or, and I, I would add to that Labour as well, because I think they're, they're one in the same um, entity now. I mean, we either agree to it or we sit our bums on the fence is, is, is how they are um, now. Can I, can I ask you about, I just wanted to pick up on something that you mentioned to us um, that, that I'd, you've been thinking about recently, and that was when you saw the reports that the, the what had been, uh, you know, showcased as a big new mega testing lab to be opened up in Scotland has been stopped. And I, I, I know from what you said to us that, that that's had a bit of an impact on you. Is that right? Yeah. It, it certainly did. And of course, this last week, of course, there we are. We've had this little um, jaunty by um, Mr. Johnston, who thought it was really vital for him to um, visit this lab. And I'd really like to know why, because why close down a lab and then visit it and build it all up? You know, however, two things struck me was that I wasn't certain where the money came from, where the funding came from for this lab in Scotland, but to just close it down, telling us that we really didn't need it. You know, what was that about? Was that about because there, he fears that we get independence and we might have been able to get our own vaccines? Because that's one of the things that they've been using as a scare tactic this time is that if we go independent, then we won't get vaccines. And the people who are most fearful of that are the elderly. And what did they do last time? They attacked the pensions. Well, they know they can't do that this time with the same impunity because that's been disproven. But of course, the, the vaccines is a different matter altogether. Um, so why close it down? It just seems stupid. And then, and then a few days later, after that announcement that they were halting the, the um, work on it, they... Johnson appears in Scotland visiting a lab. Now, it was said that no one knew where that lab was supposed to be, but this one that he visited was, I believe, in Livingston. Well, I'm not sure. I think maybe the Livingston lab he, he visited was to do with it's a company that's producing one of the new vaccines. But he did visit a testing lab based over in Glasgow in the, the Queen Elizabeth Hospital. But I think the big mega one... I don't know if it had really got off the planning stage, but it but mega is the word. I mean, I, I, you know, when it was announced that it was going to be constructed, it was announced last November, it was predicted mm -hmm. that they'd create up to 4,000 jobs. And, you know, Gene Freeman said at the time that the Scottish lab would significantly increase testing and diagnostic capability. I mean, I must admit at the time I thought, oh, well, do we do really need that? much of a lab when you know presumably you know we're going to come out of this and we'll need to have some sort of testing but hopefully we'll be out of the crisis phase but 
Um, it would also have been used to process tests for other illnesses, so including cancer, yeah. you know, cardiovascular, metabolic diseases. So it wasn't just going to be about testing for COVID, and looks like it's gone. I, I think it was going to be funded by um, UK government, but I'm not yeah. sure about yeah. that. Well, they have the right. They have the right to pull it if that's the case. But um, I think what I said to Valerie was that um, because of this um, ongoing health issue that I've had, I've had. I've lost count of the amount of times I've had swabs taken over the last year. And um, the because I worked in the health service, I know how long the, the results normally take to come back. And one of the things that I've noticed is that since they've been testing for COVID, I presume it's done locally, um, because we have various centres around us, Huntley, Fraserburgh, two in Aberdeen, um, they, that is definitely having an impact on the labs here because ordinary everyday swabs do take longer to come back. Now, I suppose if they were really, if you were, if you were thinking about testing for um, septicemia or something like that, then the labs would have some way of, of managing that. But to close a lab that was specifically intended to deal with COVID initially pulls that away from or, or puts that extra... Um, impetus onto the local um, labs, the, the the local laboratories. So so that was the first thing. And then of course this visit this last week, it struck me that two of the things that he visited were health related. And why? Because health is a devolved subject, devolved issue in in Scotland. And so he really shouldn't have had anything to do with it whatsoever. I mean, I know Nicola, I don't think he should have been here, period, but especially to visit something with, that's that's within the health service. Yeah, so indeed. Drive for propaganda, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But but yeah. I think I think it does. I mean, I th as you said to us, um, um, Fran, that it, it does highlight the dangers to NHS Scotland from, you know, well, the power grab that they set up uh, yeah. in the all the legislation they put through to enable Brexit. Uh, and, you know, they can cancel something so vital yeah. and there's nothing that can be done about it here. Well, yeah. we can protest, but we can't actually stop them. Well, and, and, and that, I suppose, is part and parcel of my frustration at yeah. the SNP, you know, saying that they were going to see what Brexit brought us. And now we know what Brexit has brought us. It just seems like, well, from my point of view anyway, I know that probably my opinion won't be liked by everyone because I know that there are lots of people within the independence movement who haven't liked anything said negatively about the SNP or Nicola Sturgeon, but... You know, she's one person within a huge party. If COVID is so important that it be dealt with, then why is she not, you know, passing that job to someone else? It doesn't have to be her that deals with it. Why can't she continue to deal with independence? Or she carries on with the COVID, but then passes on the, 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 the you know, the, the, the really important task of gaining independence to someone else within the party and I don't I don't see that happening so I think you're, I think you're saying that you, you, your views might not be popular but I actually think from reading and talking to people and look and looking at the chat in these big assemblies and gatherings that, and meetings I think um, that your views that the, the, the 
sorry, I'm, I'm not getting my words out here. The, the, the impatience and the frustration is quite widely shared. Mm -hmm. And I know that we have to choose the right moment and we have to call canny and everything. But there comes a point where you have to grasp the opportunity. And if the opportunity is not grasped, we may not get independence. And as you say yourself there, Fran, in our lifetimes, because you can see that me and Marlene aren't exactly in the first flush of youth either. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, it just it is so frustrating that, you know, you, you, you see so many people say that they want independence and the polls keep telling us this and but nothing really seems to, to, to budge at all. You know, you'd have thought that that would have been the impetus. Yes. But just to pick you up on that, I mean, do you really think that carrying on with full steam ahead with um, independence strategies and making them public and putting a lot of work, being seen to put a lot of work into them. Do you really think that would have gone down well? I mean, obviously it wouldn't, it would have been a gift to the unionist parties, but do you think it actually would have been the right thing to do, say this time last year or the past few months? Because it is, it is a crisis, health crisis situation, isn't it? And it's not that work hasn't been being done. You know, obviously, Mike Russell came out with his 11-point plan the other week. Um, but, so do you really think it would have been the right strategy? I think the two things could have been done. Sim I personally think the two things could have been simultane done simultaneously. I don't right. think... And I'm not make, I, and I don't get me wrong. I I don't want to criticise um, any one particular person in the party, least of all Nicola, because I would give her credit where credit is due, in that she has run the party very very well. Um, I just think that somewhere or another along the lines, this last two years maybe, from the, from an independence point of view, the party seems to have lost its way a little bit and drop the ball whatever um and i think the two things could have been done simultaneously um who who was the person going to be doing that i don't know yeah, i mean i think yeah. the outset i think if at the outset she had handed covid to someone senior in the party i don't think anyone would have thought any less of her as long as it was being dealt with um yeah, I, I, I mean, I think you. I mean, I think there is that. That's a good point to make, and I think that you know the. the I mean, it might have been Jean Freeman. You know, she's she's pretty impressive. She's yeah. also very good at dealing with um, the press in in these COVID updates when when she does them. She well, she doesn't take any nonsense from people. I mean, I think she would have been maybe the the, the other alternative to uh, Nicola doing it. On the other hand, you have to say that in doing it, Nicola's you know standing has it was pretty high anyway, and it's shot up. I'm not certain whoever did it couldn't have held a candle to Boris. Oh well, that's true. Absolutely. I do think that the way she's handled the COVID crisis has brought a lot of people over to independence yeah. because they've seen that Scotland can handle yeah. a major crisis. Manage itself, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah you've got a point. Yeah. yeah. But, so, but I think you do have, you also have a point, um, Fran, in, in, in saying we don't want, we don't want to wait too long. And I, I, I um, 
you know, I, I saw that the uh, Leslie Riddick's got another in, film out in her series of the films called Nation. So there's one out now about Estonia. I think it's being premiered tonight. I saw a wee clip from it, and she's interviewing an Estonian politician called Mart Lars, uh, and he, he's just sitting there, and he says, for, for them, the most important thing was courage. And he said, you need a moment of courage and all other things follow. I mean, that really touched yeah, me. Yeah, and, yeah. and then he said, but you don't want to wait too long because courage is a thing that comes and goes. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And, and I think at the moment, when you've got people who are so keen on it, um, you know, the courage will disappear because because generally speaking the majority of people in the country are not what i would describe as politically um i'm not going to even use the word active they're not politically aware of you know to them it doesn't it doesn't matter to them it doesn't affect you know you'll get often people will say well it doesn't affect me or oh, i won't vote for nicola i won't vote for the smp because i don't like nicola sturgeon you know they are not aware that they're not voting for nicola sturgeon they're voting for an mp or an msp um, so, and I think that's one of the things about politics that really gets me. My husband, I mean, he, he says, you weren't like this when we first got married. And I suppose I, that's, tr that's true enough, I wasn't. But then, in a way, I didn't really feel like I had to um, fight for anything before. Yeah. But I do feel like I have to fight for something now. Having said that, despite the fact that he's an Englishman, he is very much in favour of independence and yeah. also supports the SNP. Um, he's just walked in, he's been going down my shopping for me while I've been chatting. We're very, very lucky to have folk like you fighting <laughs> for us, um, Fran, that's all I can see. Yeah, I, I, I sympathise, Fran. I'm, I'm married to an Englishman, although he's lived up here in Scotland for longer than he ever lived in England. And he... He was a bit, he he was a bit, you know, on the fence in 2014, but the last couple of years, he, he, he votes SNP all the time, used to vote Labour, votes SNP, he's going to vote yes in the next referendum, and he puts up with my frequent shouting at the television. <laughs> in fact, he's even been known to shout once or twice himself. Yeah, my husband's a little bit more circumspect. I think he shouts in his head and that puts his blood pressure up. <laughs> I keep telling him you should shout out loud and then it wouldn't be quite so bad. But, I mean, he was the same. He was a no in the last referendum. But before the vote came, he did some reading and I think he discovered the little blue book. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, that um, really pointed him in the direction of... Um, looking at the facts and figures and, and basically why they desperately, so desperately, don't want us to leave, want us to hang on to their coattails, even though they don't really, and we all know that they don't really care about Scotland or its people. They don't, they don't, um, you know, they tell us that they fund it, but you only have to look at the funding that goes into London and know that um, Scotland is definitely the poor relative. And, so listen, Fran, it's been such a pleasure talking to you today. Okay. And we're, we hope you'll come on again in the future and maybe give us your views. Um, can, 
if you wait and see how much stick I get from people. Absolutely not. Um, I'm sure you won't. Um, can I just ask if you had one last thought to share with our listeners about independence and the future of Scotland, what would it be if you could say one thing? Maybe just, that's hard to put you on the spot, but if you, if you had one message. I suppose because independence supporters are so much in favour of it and desperate for it really um and it and well I mean well like like you Marlene I married to an Englishman there's no one can tell me that I hate the English both my kids were born in England I can't hate the English I don't hate the English I lived there for a long time and although sometimes I got some really quite bad treatment at the hands of the English from a you know from being a Scots person um you know they are welcome to their country but I think I always think if the shoe was on the other foot and the English were being dictated to by the Scots, then that would be viewed very, very differently. We'd be having a huge quantity of people telling us, no, we want nothing to do with them. Send them afloat, put them off into the North Sea somewhere. Um, and they would let us go in a in a heartbeat. So, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that you've got it there. Actually, I think that's very true, and it's been great. It's been really great talking to you. Thanks for coming on the program. Yeah. Thank you so much, Fran. Yeah. All the best. All the very best, and keep well. Keep Thank you and your family. Thank you. So yeah, so we've got uh, Rob Rosie with us this morning, and and Rob, I I, I don't know if you picked up on this, but um. I was one of the people who contributed to an article that appeared in Scotland uh, National on Sunday last week. So along yeah. with yourself and uh, Fran Hobson. So um, we contacted you and Fran afterwards and uh, thought, well, just be good to get you on and uh, get uh, be able to go into things in a bit more you know, detail. And I, I did notice that what you said to, uh, now who was the journalist? Um, Judith, Judith Duffy. That um, you you did you did focus a lot on on the constitutional side of it, which well she'd asked us to say what we thought of Mike Russell's eleven point plan, which had just come out that day. Um, mm -hmm. But there, there was one thing I I I was I was taken with. Well, at one point you said um, whichever whichever way the 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 UK government resists a referendum, it would mean that they would be standing against democracy and that's not a good place to be in so do you want to kick us kick off and tell us what what was behind that we there's always been quite a lot of debate on our our sort of strategy uh, as we approach the sort of holiday elections and what we're going to do about a referendum and i think there's you know understandably there's a degree of sort of frustration yeah. with um you know that, that things are taking quite a long time and obviously it's not been helped by uh covid um but you know where i think I, I i was quite happy to hear about the uh the 11 point plan well i was glad to hear that you know stuff's happening and there's movement on that front so and when we we're kind of talking about it and and judith had asked me for a sort of contribution to the article um I was kind of, I was running through and as someone who sort of studied law, you know, uh, my mind's very much going to like, okay, well, you know, if we go ahead with this plan, then what is their sort of next move going to yeah, be? Yeah. And very much I think, you know, well, they could do all the stuff, they could take it to court, they could say this in court, uh, and then maybe they will want to go to court, maybe they'll want to try and block it from getting to court. 
And I was thinking of all these sort of different possibilities in different avenues, but then I kind of remembered it doesn't matter what they do because whatever legal avenue or method or whatever they do, nothing will change the fact that they'll be standing against democracy. Um, and and obviously, you know, the sort of Trump... Uh, Trump had recently left office as that was happening, or, or I think he might still be in office at the time of the national yeah, article yeah, going out. Yeah, just, yeah, just. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I felt very apt, uh, I, I think, uh, as an example, you know, someone who had stood against democracy and, and was paying the price for it, you know. Um, so that was kind of the thought process behind uh, my sort of contribution to the article. It felt very timely. Yeah, well, I think that's an interesting point to make, actually, that doesn't actually matter what the UK government does if what they're doing is always resisting democracy. And maybe that's something that, it's a bigger picture, isn't it? And maybe that's something that gets a bit lost in amongst, you know, what are, as you say, like un understandable frustrations about wanting to get on with things and 20 polls all saying majority for yes. Uh, but, but that that um, uh, bigger picture's a, a, a good one to, to, keep in, to keep in mind. Because it's not just that it's not a good place to be, isn't it? Um, I mean, it well, it had its consequences. Well, for Trump, anyway, it had consequences. It's a very unpopular place to be in. And hopefully, you know, it'll be more and more unpopular for up here in, in, in Scotland. Yeah, and another thing to remember, although you obviously, you're a law graduate and we all believe, well, I'm assuming all of us believe very much in the rule of law. Another thing to remember, of course, is that a lot of... Um, political change was from systems that were legal. I mean, you know, um, apartheid was legal. The uh, segregation that was fought against by the civil rights movement in America, that was legal. People fought to overthrow um, laws that were, that were um, unpopular and repressive. So um, going down the legal route is not necessarily the be-all and end-all. I think that's a really important point that you make, Robert. <laughs> Rob yeah, I think um, a big thing is that, um, you know, when court cases happen, there's obviously a lot of drama. And I think it's quite, uh, you know, it's quite attractive to sort of journalists and stuff. You know, it makes for a, yeah. it makes for a good story and it's kind of high stakes and stuff. In a lot of way, ways, when there's a political sort of issue going on, like let's take, for example, the prorogation of Parliament, um, and it gets taken to the courts, it, it, in a sort of uh, unexpected way, I guess, often the, the legal uh, uh, element of it isn't actually that important and what i mean by that is in these situations generally what happens is you've got a political issue but the political issue is always separate from the legal issue so if you take the our, our situation with the referendum right there's a there's a political issue here which is that the scottish government wants to hold a referendum the uk government doesn't want to hold a referendum and the, there's not agreement there and that disagreement sort of creates a stalemate now there's a, a legal issue which is is the Scottish Parliament competent to hold a referendum or not? And while it seems like the same thing, it's actually not. It's two separate problems. And when you talk about sort of a court case and what the potential outcome could be, it demonstrates how those two things are separate. So 
because um and and the issue is that when you take a thing a thing like this to court you get a verdict on the the legal issue you get an outcome for that but the political issue doesn't get resolved the political issue continues so the uk government takes us to court for trying to hold a referendum the court could it could go either way um it's it's despite what a lot of folk in the sort of uk government uh, side will say legally it's a pretty great area that could go either way but um it doesn't matter what way it goes after that court case uk government if, if the uk government loses they won't just say okay have your referendum if the scottish government loses they won't just say okay well we'll give up now both sides will still want what they want but it's just that you know that that, that legal issue will be cleared up but that political issue will continue and it really will continue until both sides are able yeah. to negotiate a settlement can i ask you rob, rob what your view if you have one is on the current legal case that's going through um by taken out by martin keatings have you yeah. got any views on that my, my my view on it is i think the court is probably now i'm not completely up to date but my, my understanding is the court still to make a decision on whether or not they'll be taking that I think the court is going to be unlikely to to take it because especially on sort of constitutional questions like this, courts generally don't like to have to answer them unless they have to. Um, right. And is that court, the, um, the, this idea of they won't comment on something that's hypothetical, is that the essence yeah, of that, that argument? kind of notion and i think in in i think quite wisely courts prefer that you know these sort of issues are resolved by politicians and through the democratic process okay. um and i think you know if you look at even the two miller cases yeah. i think you can kind of detect a bit of um dissatisfaction from the courts that they found themselves in the situation where they have to make rulings and decisions like that um and i think what what the court will hope is is i i think the court will hope that they won't have to make a decision on the competence of the scottish parliament okay right so when what was when the the court of session did take a position on the proroguing of Parliament, didn't it? But that was presumably that's different because mm -hmm. something had actually happened, and they yeah. were being that was being challenged. So, so okay, yeah. So uh, another thing you mentioned, I think you mentioned it in the national article, was um, about a possibility is that the UK government could do a reverse Section Thirty order. So what? I haven't come across that before. Um, what can you explain? What that is, or would okay, be? So, yeah. So I think that if the Scottish Parliament does proceed with a referendum, I uh, actually think this is going to be the UK government's most likely course of action. I don't think they'll want to challenge it in court because because there's just a lot of risk associated with that. So as so Section Thirty Order is it enables the UK government to alter the competence of the Scottish Parliament. Um, so that, that, that's quite well established. So in the same way that the UK government can say, okay, you have the competence to hold a referendum of independence, they also have the ability to say, 
okay, well, we're going to explicitly say that you don't have the power to hold a referendum on Scottish independence. And that would put that, that, would put that beyond doubt and it would do it without there having to be a court case. So that would go through the House of Commons as a, a piece of legislation? Uh, right, my... Um, I think that the UK government might be able to do it themselves by virtue okay. of the Crown, but might have to go through Parliament. I'm not actually too sure on that yeah. point. Of course, they, they could, um, couldn't they? They could yeah. easily put it through Parliament. Yeah, they, yeah, they, they, they absolutely have the power to alter the competence of the Scottish Parliament um, to put a referendum out with the, the Scottish Parliament's competence. Yeah. Now... I think that's more like I think they're more likely to do that than letting it uh, well than, than challenging it in the courts because the end outcome would be the same that the well that the referendum would be legally blocked. Um, mm-hmm. but what but if it goes to court, the UK government has to endure a, a, f- a few days in court, which is probably going to be humiliating <laughs> because it's going to be on the world stage. It's yeah. going to be. You know, it's going to be with the European Union that is, you know, not in the best of moods with the UK right now. Um, and, you know, they're probably going to struggle to find sympathy. And and even then, it's, there's not a huge, um, th- th- there's a chance they could lose that case. Yeah, indeed. And if, indeed. Yeah. And if they lose that case, they then are faced with the choice of either let the referendum happen or do a reverse Section 30 order after losing the court case, which looks even worse. Even worse, yes, exactly. I mean, mean, I'm just thinking back to the Supreme Court when they were taking that, um, you know, decision about the proroguing, and, you know, their TV channel was being watched by thousands and thousands of us, and, you know, Lady Hale went viral, you know, kind of at one point. I bet she never expected that to happen. So, okay, so either they say yes, which we're all thinking that's very unlikely, or uh, they challenge it in court. If, If they win, they win, but if they lose... You that they they could still do the reverse section thirty, and that would be the, that would be the worst possible outcome for them, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah, that it would be terrible. Um, yeah, they would. Well, it would be humiliated, you know. Um, and I think, but it kind of it it kind of comes comes down to the core point of this that you know there's various tricks and tools that they can use to block a referendum, and I'm sure they will try and do that for a while. But no matter how long they try and do it, they're going to be fighting against democracy. Um, And it's why, you know, because I think on our end, the strategy has a level of risk, you know, because obviously we're entering a court case. Well, we're we're entering sort of this process to hold a referendum and we don't exactly know what the outcome will be of that. Um, But, you know, in politics, you do have to take risks sometimes. And it's about, you know, what we kind of have to be conscious of is these are the different outcomes that could happen. We need to be ready for each of these outcomes and to sort of pile on the political pressure, you know? Um, Because I think, you know, imagine if we, if we do it, if it does end up going to court, imagine the sort of campaigns and stuff we can run (laughs) in, in the things we could be saying about the UK government is that's that's going on, you know? Yeah. 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 
Yeah, we can we can do a whole twenty first uh, century version of Parcel of Rogues in a Nation, can't we? <laughs> <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. What about oh, if um, they said yes to a referendum, but then start, you know, being slick around it and putting in, um, you know, changes? Well, it might be about timing, might be about wording, might be about number of choices. Do you think that's likely? Yeah, so what will happen is when they're kind of finally beaten into submission and, and, and have to agree to the referendum, they'll try to negotiate terms that are as favourable to them as possible. So that'll be about uh, franchise. So, for example, they might try and make it uh, that the referendum uses a UK Parliament franchise rather than the, the, the Scottish um Parliament's franchise. So that would be excluding 17-year-olds, 16-year-olds, it'd be excluding EU citizens. Um, the other the other one they might do is to try and change the question. So they might try and make it a leave-remain question to try and confuse people. So the Scottish government's actually been quite clever, though, because they've gotten on this in advance and they passed a, a bill... Uh, a couple of years ago now, I think it was, which basically said this is the franchise for any elections and referendums that happen in Scotland. And uh, it's kind of like an on-the-shelf thing that they can say, okay, well, this is what we're going to use for a referendum. And they've established that. And because they've established it now, it will make it a lot harder for the UK government to argue against it, especially considering that franchise has been used for the previous referendum and in uh, elections in Scotland over the last few years, excluding the, the general elections, because that uses a UK government franchise. Um, but I think, uh, well, it, like, I'm sure you'll both recall in uh, the, the day uh, early days of the... Um, 2014 referendum there was a lot of negotiation over the sort of terms and yeah. and another one that got floated and it may well pop up again was if Devo Max would be on the ballot paper yeah. um, I wouldn't be surprised if those sort of conversations yeah. start to happen again but this time I think it might be the unionists who argue for Devo Max to be in the ballot paper indeed yes indeed well, it's interesting times, isn't it? It's like that Chinese kind of... I don't think it's meant to be a compliment you when they say, you know, may you live in interesting times. It's like it's meant to be kind of a bit of a dig. At, it's not very, you know, it's not very easy sometimes. And it isn't really very easy at the moment, isn't it? I mean, there's... I mean, all these these kind of differences going on and, uh, well, not to mention differences in Scotland as well about, about strategy Um and uh, one of the things that um, that uh, I just coming to mind just now was also there's different there's still differences in terms of the different support for yes across the age age brackets. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, Val and I, when you can see, we're obviously in the elderly, uh, or let's say older uh, age bracket. And I'm, I mean, I mean covers it, uh, yeah, okay, that'll do. And uh, you know, still minority support for 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 yes. I mean, it has credit. It's 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 up over thirty percent. I think it was only about twenty five percent in two thousand and. 14 but you know very different in in your age bracket and uh, you know you're obviously working with um what well, you mentioned um you know why is that young scots for independence so 
Yeah, that's uh, that's another kind of um, difference there is, isn't it? Are, are you do you do you find um, do you think that's right that generally speaking, you know, amongst young folk that you know that the S supports as high as it's reported? Yeah, I definitely, um, I definitely think so. It is quite interesting, the sort of how it's kind of um, how the sort of it's arranged itself and stuff. But I think it's also important to remember that. You know, while young people generally, you know, are more likely to support independence, and and um, older people are generally less likely to support independence. You know, there is actually quite a lot of older folk that do support independence, uh, and there is a sizable number of young people who also support the the union. So I think it's important not to forget that, and, and it's important to remember. You know, if we're going to win, we need to make the case to everybody. Um, and we need to make a case that can that can bring everyone with us, you know. Yeah, yeah. Can I ask you about your involvement in the Young Scots for Independence? You're the convener in the northeast, is that right, Rob? Yes, that's right. So I I joined the SMP in it was towards the end of 2014. Um, so I turned 16. Uh, it was actually two months after the referendum. Oh. So I, I just missed my opportunity to, to uh, vote for an independent Scotland. Um, so I, I was quite determined to get involved. And not long after that, I started to get involved with the YSI as well. So um, when I studied down in Glasgow, uh, so that was from uh, from 2017 to 2018. I served as the director of campaigns for the YSI. All right. Um, so I take I take quite an interest in political campaigning. Um, I I find it sort of fascinating, and I I kind of like the sort of numbers and the data aspect of that as well. It's kind of a bit of a sort of nerdy <laughs> interest of mine. Anyway, um, the numbers side yeah. and the tech, the tactics. Yeah. yeah, and then I moved back up to Aberdeen after I finished studying down in Glasgow, and that's when I sort of stood to be um, convener of ISI Northeast. And um, so before I sort of stepped in, uh, ISI Northeast had uh, kind of fallen into a little bit of inactivity. So we've kind of been relaunching it uh, over the past few months, and uh, it's been it, it it's been pretty successful. We've been holding events with uh, a lot of our candidates over the region. So the first one we did was with uh, Karen Adam and Gillian Martin, mm-hmm. um, and we also uh, we also held an event with uh, Joe Fitzpatrick and Shona Robinson, which was mm-hmm. really interesting. And and we've got more plans. So I think uh, we we've got a meeting with uh, Fergus Much and mm-hmm. Mary Goujon. So uh, it's an exciting time to be involved. It's mm-hmm. an exciting time to be uh, sort of in the role I'm in. Um, I also do work with the Aberdeen Independence Movement. Oh, oh yeah. yeah, yeah. They've had yeah. a few big good big events recently, haven't they? Yeah, yeah. I think. Uh, the work they've done so far is really impressive so uh it's really exciting i that i i sort of um i was elected as co-organizer a couple of weeks ago now so it's a really fantastic team and i'm kind of looking forward to some of the stuff we're yeah we're yeah get up to. I, I, i've been in touch with the with the um i can't remember the name of the chapter i was in touch with but one of the aim group because um, I asked if we could record the, that meeting they did the other week about postal voting. 
Oh, yeah, yeah. And uh, he, he, whoever I was talking to, sorry if he's listening, don't remember your name, uh, <laughs> said, you know, if, if obviously if you were having just a, a more of a private group meeting, you wouldn't want, we, they wouldn't want that recording. But he's happy for us to record the, the, the public events. And that is such an important topic to get good information out, out uh, and, and heard. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've interviewed quite a lot of folks from YSI. I'm sure you'll know a lot of them. Um, eh, Rob, we've interviewed, it was a while ago now, right enough, but eh, Kaylin McMahon and Charlotte Armitage, oh, yeah. convener and national yeah. vice convener, and also from the Highlands eh, and Islands, eh, the co-convener there, Kieran Grant, and also Ewan Smith, who's the, the I think he's the Islands convener yeah. in the Isle of Lewis. And uh, John Cumming, we've had quite a lot of links with YSI. But I, I'm, I'm scared to ask you, how's your head if you were at the Bun Supper last night? <laughs> the, the YSI. <laughs> you know what? I actually I, I actually wasn't able to make it, unfortunately. Oh, right. I had my ticket, but I ended up getting busy uh, that night. Uh, but I heard it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great it's great to all these online i mean online meetings fair enough but also you know online burn suppers and uh val and i were at a pensioners for independence online burn supper which was great fun i mean you know it had its glitches it must be said but it was great fun and you know people get people you know there was a whole program all worked out and a little bit of space for people coming in uh you know an open mic kind of thing at, at the night but it was fantastic bring your own haggis and bring your own whiskey <laughs> Can I ask you, Rob, before, I, I know that this is, you know, your precious time. We don't want to take up too much. But oh, no worries, no worries at all. Well, we've got you. I'd like, you were talking about, you know, being very much involved in campaigning. And uh, I, I just wondered if you had any um, comments on that, because obviously it's really hard at the moment with COVID. We're all sort of confined to barracks as it were and it looks like things are not going to change dramatically between now and May so in terms of party political campaigning but also generally campaigning for independence how do you see that panning out have, have your group or have you is it are you aware of any sort of creative ideas for campaigning given the fact that like I'm, I used to always do loads of street stalls and Partick and in Byers Road been doing that for years now and um, obviously street stalls are not an option and chapping doors and even I'm hearing leafleting is which was supposed to be okay folk are starting to think even that's not a good idea so I'm just wondering you know what's your take on how you see campaigning for the Holyrood elections, but also for independence in the in the event of a referendum, what would your kind of ideas be? Yeah, so I think it's it's one of the biggest challenges we have right now because our biggest asset is our activists, right? It's our um, it's the biggest resource. We have a, a a lot of very fantastic activists who are willing to um, commit a lot of their time to the cause, um, and you know the issue is that our opponents don't. Uh, our opponents instead they rely on sort of spending lots of money to bombard constituencies with uh, leaflets i remember um so i i used to live in the constituency of gordon and that was a top tory target and mm -hmm. i remember the the you know 
oh, the amount of leaflets and stuff I was getting through my door from them, it was unbelievable. So it's something we have to be um, conscious of. And I think a, a lot of it is we need to to look at how we can adapt to the sort of new environment we find ourselves in. Um, we've always been very good at utilising social media mm-hmm. as a campaign tool. And I think that's going to have to be a sort of a, a, a key thing we we look at. Um, there's also very creative ideas. So one of the big things in sort of SMP campaigns is getting data from voters, right? Mm-hmm. And that, 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 so that's what we're doing when we when we canvas. Yeah. Um, but one idea I've seen floated about, which which is quite clever, is you sort of send out a letter, a, a letter to. Um, to voters but it has like a qr code on it so they can scan that on their phone and then fill out the form online and and that can be a way we can get data so um i think you know it's challenging but it's surmountable and um you know in a lot of ways while you never want to be in a situation like this the benefit of it is that um it often inspires creativity you know and I'm sure that sort of uh, a lot of the lessons we end up sort of learning from this will apply to to future sort of post-pandemic campaigns, mm-hmm. uh, like the referendum campaign. Um, I mean, one thing it's done is opened up attendance at branch meetings and at yes group meetings to people who previously might not have been able to attend for reasons yeah. of childcare or a geographical isolation or disability or you know all sorts of reasons and it's amazing that you know you can attend a one night you can attend a meeting in Oban the next meeting you can be in Kirinure <laughs> so uh, I've certainly enjoyed that and it, it enables it's enabled you also to build up links and and um you know, like relationships with people in different parts of Scotland and hear about different issues. So certainly we've done that through the radio, but just as private individuals, we've done it very much. Like like Grassroots Robins, a fabulous um, resource there for going, they've had some cracking um, meetings and as you say your own Aberdeen independence movement yeah. that, that's a really important issue the one of postal voting isn't it yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I've been so thankful to have had sort of like my you know sort of friends within the SNP and in in the sort of movement during uh, this time because I think that it's it, it's really been a you know because it's like a big family in a lot of ways um, yeah. and I think what, what, one of the other things I always have always been really sort of thankful for with, with the work I've done the SMP is it helps you to sort of become friends and network with people that you might otherwise not really be friends with, you know, especially if it's people of a different generation or working in different fields and stuff like that. So I, I, I do think it really brings people together and I think it's really good. And I hope that even when we come out of the um, pandemic, we still have these online meetings and stuff because it does it does enable um well first it, it enables you to be able to go to more meetings than you might otherwise not been able to before just because of distance and time but also to get um people who can't attend physical meetings to get them involved too you know so i heard it's yeah. the best 
you know, the idea of having hybrid meetings because obviously being able to meet folk face to face, there's no there's no um substitute for that, but the idea of having a hybrid meeting where you could have a meeting in real life, but you, you could also allow folk who can't manage for various reasons to to attend that if it was streamed or if it was via Zoom or whatever. I think that's, if you're talking about creativity, which is a really, really good uh, point. And I think that sort of idea is is great. I mean, even my mum, who's 87, knows how to do a Zoom call now. <laughs> <laughs> and we, we've been, because of our, I mean, we, we've been doing, um, we started doing, uh, you know, remotely, uh, streaming in remotely to the radio. I mean, this this one we're recording with you, Rob, but often we do them live. So, you know, we're doing that for a year. So we've been, we've chatted to folk from all over Scotland, all over different yes groups. And what we're planning is that once the travel restrictions have gone and everyone is feeling a bit safer, um, we, we, we're, we're, travel, we're thinking of having a, a, a wee, t- the two of us, a wee tour around Scotland and actually go and meet up. So, you know, we've had umpteen, we've had umpteen invitations to stay overnight, haven't we, Val? <laughs> <laughs> a lot of sky. Oh, there's a bed for you here. <laughs> Somebody had only spoken to on the phone for 10 minutes. <laughs> Uh, one thing I was going to ask you, uh, Rob, it's just going back to the, you know, the difference in demographics across uh, so, yes support. I mean, have you got any, have you got any ideas about how you know we can persuade more, um, uh, you know, over sixty fives round round to yes. Yeah. I, apart from persuade a persuade your granny uh, campaign, you know. <laughs> Yeah, so I think in in um, in in, in my region, um, I think in 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 certain areas, especially Aberdeenshire, a big uh, point is the fishing industry, right? Yeah, uh, that's and that's particularly um, important to a lot of uh, sort of older members of the party. My my late granddad, uh, he was a fisherman, and you know, it very much sort of led his political support. Um, in that you know, he he obviously wasn't a, wasn't a huge fan of 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 the EU, but he was a supporter of Scottish independence, and um, so I think we kind of I, I think it's important to remember that a lot of these people were told by the Tories, you know, oh we're going to leave the EU and it's going to be fantastic for the fishing and it's going to be great and we've left the EU and, and the reality is it's actually hurt the industry quite a lot. Um, so I think it's going to be important to reach out to kind of um, reach out to these people and, and, and kind of highlight how, you know, even though we'll be, we're campaigning for independent Scotland's going to be part of Europe, how we're going to be able to sort of fight for a better deal for them as an independent Scotland than the UK would and, and that would put them at the centre of of those negotiations. Sure. I think that's going to be an important... Um, a very important point, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, very much. Yeah. So, um, is there a, so before we finish, um, Rob, is there anything, if you had a message to send out to our listeners, particularly with um, reference to the way ahead um, over the next few months, is there any, any final thought you'd like yeah. to this year i think i would um 
you know, we're in a strong position, but there is a lot of sort of agitation around the sort of yes movement. I think a lot of people are, are feeling a bit worried just because we're at such a crucial time and that's completely natural and that's normal. So I'd encourage people to sort of keep the heed. Um, you know, we're in a good place. We're doing the right thing. We just need to keep going, stay strong, and, and we've got this. Keep the away. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, thank you very much indeed. That's a, that's a Thank good. you very much for having me. Oh, I've no, enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I hope we'll get you back on again sometime. Yeah, yeah. absolutely be more great. than happy to. I mean, I belong to Bamsha, I belong to Keith, so it's been great this today to have two folk on from the northeast of Scotland. One was a Fran Hobson from a near Turriff and near Shell oh, okay. from Aberdeen. So. It's oh, been fantastic. Great. Yeah, yeah. I spent the first um, three months of the lockdown up an inch because um, um, in Gordon, because um, I was at my mum's and Keith eh, when the lockdown was coming, and my sister said, you know, why don't you move in with her and her husband because they've got quite a big house for a garden. But I'm back in my tenement now, <laughs> <laughs> like a wee hermit, but they, they, they threw me out eventually. <laughs> yeah, it's been really, really enjoyed talking to you, Rob, and yes, yeah, jo- as uh, as Val says, hope we'll speak again in the future. Yeah, it's yep. been absolutely, absolutely. It's been fantastic f- to get your, you know, as a law graduate, fantastic yeah. to get your views on you know the constitutional law aspect and also your activities with the YSI so thank you very much indeed yeah yeah thank you for having me it's been great okay right. see you later bye-bye see ya.